0: Hey, y'all. Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy
1: 2019. What are we waiting for? Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh,
0: you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh?
1: I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too serene, Will. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have gotten. Oscar. Who Martin. are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? He's a big movies Think about big men in tights. Roll that motherfucking camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man has taken it very, very personal.
0: Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies... Tarantino edition. This happens once, but every, what, three to five years, I guess? And it's a, you know, it's a notable occasion. This is something uh, I think both of us look forward to.
1: Yeah, it seems like the distance between films has been tightening up for him over the last couple of years. He's released four films in uh, 11 years, which is which is quite a lot for him. And uh, yeah, I mean, every time he makes a movie, I, I mean, you I think even if you're a super fan or not, It does kind of almost seem like the cinematic equivalent of a national holiday, right?
0: Yeah, it does. And it's interesting that you say he is sort of tightening up his time between movies, uh, I don't know, the, the weight of mortality is... I, I wonder if that's it, because, I mean, that's part of what this movie's about, I suppose. But, I mean, it, it's definitely a welcome thing, and I, we've seen this, I think, from a lot of filmmakers recently, these legacy you know auteurs, whether it's Scorsese or Ridley Scott, or these old guys who are just Clint Eastwood, who just become kind of workhorses in their, in their later years.
1: And yet their films never really feel like as much of an event, right? Like, a Steven Spielberg film doesn't feel like as much of an event as a Tarantino movie. A Scorsese movie doesn't seem like as much of an event. I was trying... I was just thinking, you know, a few minutes before we started recording, like, who are the American... Let's just keep it to American filmmakers. Who are the American auteurs for whom a release of their film is like a big pop cultural event? And I just... I I think it's just Tarantino, Nolan, and P.T. Anderson, right? I mean, I'm trying to... Trying to I, expand I, I, I outside my own.
0: Lewis, I would add Wes Anderson to that.
1: Okay. As well. Yeah, that's fair. Is there? I guess they're a little more modest in scope, but sure. I'll, I'll, I'll buy that.
0: I know you said American, but I go Denis Villeneuve. Okay. Villeneuve, uh My ninety-eighth time in a row mispronouncing his last name. <laughs> someday we'll get it right. Uh, someday. Uh, but yeah, I think that's just about it for for big event auteur guys and you know you're right about Spielberg and Scorsese those guys are more mercenarial right they're they're not uh you know every Tarantino movie is such a Tarantino movie same with kind of P.T. Anderson, Wes Anderson and even Christopher Nolan yeah I
1: mean they're doing remakes they're doing you know Spielberg's remaking West Side Story which will be an event and it's in itself just for the novelty of it but you know Scorsese's doing you know th- weird 3D you know animated stuff I mean He's, he's, he's doing documentaries. He's, he's releasing stuff on Netflix. I mean, he's kind of all over the map. Good for him. More power to him. Horizontally integrating or whatever. But Tarantino makes Tarantino movies. And Tarantino movies are big, splashy, crazy. You know, genre exercises shot on 35 millimeter, sometimes 70 millimeter film. And you look at them and you know immediately who they come from. And that really is kind of the definition of an auteur, right? His fingerprints yeah. are so thick. They are all over every single frame of his films. You could, you would never mistake them with anyone else's movies.
0: For better or for worse, I, I suppose that's true. I mean, what movie of his do you think is, is the least of him, if that makes sense? I mean, I, I guess the obvious answer would be Jackie Brown. It's the one he disappears into most just because that's a... Well, his, it's know. his only adaptation. He's adapting yeah. yeah.
1: And honestly, without giving too much away here, I really feel like Jackie Brown is the film that once upon a time in Hollywood, reminded me most of in his oeuvre. Yeah,
0: yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, uh, well, well, why, why would you say that, Matt?
1: It just feels like his his softest, his most melancholy, his most personal, like it, the one that's set quote unquote most in the real world until it's not. Um, yep. It it, <laughs> it feels much more ground level than so much of his stuff, and it feels much less like a like an out and out. Overt genre exercise. I mean, Jackie Brown, Jackie Brown's a movie that I really don't revisit very often. I know a lot of people swear by it. A lot of people think it's his masterpiece for some of the reasons that I'm explicating here. It is the one that feels least like cliched Tarantino film. It is maybe his most character centric. It's certainly his most, you know, romantic and down to earth. Uh, it's his kind of slowest. I mean, well, up until Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it was the most low-key, casual, lackadaisical. I mean, I, I think that's maybe why I don't respond to it quite as much because it is so low-key. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like that. I mean, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is the, you know, one of your one of your favorite sort of sub-genres, the hangout movie, right? It is his yeah, most absolutely. hangout hangout movie since Jackie Brown. It's interesting that... To a fault.
0: Yeah, that's the conclusion about Jackie Brown because... You know, it's it's adapted from an Elmore Leonard novel, which which I read last year. Sure, Rum Punch. Yeah, and it's it's, it's just so tight. Like like the plot is is extremely tight, and there's there's no sort of uh, you know uh, diversions within it. Like the, the, the there's not a uh, you know wasted word in that book. And you know, the, Jackie Brown and Once Upon a Time Hollywood are pretty different in that regard, where Jackie Brown has a really sort of straightforward, tight plot and once upon a time in hollywood doesn't
1: it's almost and in search of a plot it's almost like a yeah. bunch of characters trying to like traveling around los angeles looking for a plot
0: yeah so in terms of the plot spectrum for tarantino i think those two are the ones at the polar ends almost interesting but uh, but uh, i know what you're saying in terms of feel and melancholy and,
1: and jackie brown is definitely his least violent right I mean, it's been years since I've seen it. I know, you know, at one point Robert De Niro shoots Bridget Fonda, at what point um, Samuel L. Jackson shoots Chris Tucker. But that's pretty yeah. much it, right? I mean, other than that, there isn't a- as much ultra violence in that as in his other films. And, and up until the last few minutes of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's definitely his least violent, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean yeah, he, that's ma- true. he makes up for it for sure.
0: In terms of like gore on screen, yeah, I think you're probably right. Um, Death Proof is kind of like that, I guess. I mean, it's violent, but not sort of ultra violent right?
1: I would push back a little bit on that. When was the last time you saw Death Proof?
0: I, I, I revisit at least once the, a year. I love
1: the that. the car. So do I. I'm a big Death Proof defender. I mean, people have everybody's been releasing their you know their quintessential Tarantino rankings this week, and that's the one that
0: which we will do as well. absolutely.
1: Um, but that's the one that just consistently comes up as as the bottom of everybody's list, which I just think is ludicrous because I love that movie. I think it's so much fun. I think it's just so such an interesting like look inside his head. And there is a centerpiece scene, the first crash where you actually can, you know, you see the tires like ripping into, you know, the faces of these, you know, or their limbs flying off. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty raw. I mean, it's it's played, yeah. it's almost played for over the top. I wouldn't say it's played for laughs, but it's definitely played like a horror. It's played like a slasher sequence, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, but this is on the Tarantino spectrum, right? So, like <laughs> in terms in terms of number of scenes of ultra violence, that's pretty low on the list.
1: Yeah, I mean, this the second half is certainly much much less violent. It's most, mostly yeah. mechanical violence. So, just in terms of like where this film falls in the Tarantino spectrum, as you call it, I, I've been sort of trying to break up his career to figure out exactly what each of the phases in his career mean. Okay. And, you know, obviously I like to do this. I that, that that's yeah. all the whole Steven Spielberg, uh, Uber series got started is trying to figure out where the, the lines of demarcation are. Right. Yeah. So I really feel that Quentin Tarantino is now in the, is, is in the third phase of his career. And I sort of think, I think that each phase really represents a decade if the first phase is the 90s then that's when you know a young upstart sensation that comes out of Sundance has something to prove and matures in the golden age of the Elmore Leonard adaptation right and that's that's why that decade ends with his Jackie Brown with his rum punch adaptation Jackie Brown so obviously you get Reservoir Dogs first True Romance comes along a year later uh, Pulp Fiction of course his you know his masterpiece in 1994 and he becomes uh, the rock star auteur and then you get Nat- Natural Born Killers comes next in 95, he directs uh, Four Rooms in 95 and then uh, From Dusk Till Dawn comes along in 95 as well, right? 95 is a big year for non-directed Tarantino, tangential Tarantino projects. Same year he directs uh, an episode of ER very good episode mm-hmm. of ER and yeah. then he uh, fucking hosts SNL <laughs> Right, (laughs) I (laughs) mean the rock star auteur. Can you think of another hyphen? You know, and I'm not talking about like Bradley Cooper or Clint Eastwood or something. I mean, can you think of another just auteur filmmaker who has the that kind of personality that could host SNL?
0: Didn't Scorsese Scorsese host SNL
1: once? Is that right? Is that right? That's that's kind of wonky. I mean, he he, he has. There's some pretty good performances over the course of Scorsese's career but in both his yeah. films and other people's films. But I certainly... I mean, he's a better actor than Tarantino. I would say that. <laughs> but I don't know if he's as big of a personality. And then the, sort of the last project is, of course, Jackie Brown in 97. And that's kind of it. That's kind of the end of the 90s for Tarantino. Phase two is obviously the 2000s. He doesn't... He has a five... He has a six years off. He doesn't do anything between... Jackie Brown, and Kill Bill Volume 1, which comes along in 2003. Kill Bill Volume 2 comes along, what, six months later in 2004, because that was originally supposed to be one movie. Uh, He he directs an episode of CSI in 2005. (laughs) Uh, He directs one scene in Sin City, probably the best scene in the movie, actually. Immediately after that, in 2007, he and Rodriguez do Grindhouse. Rodriguez does Planet Terror, and Tarantino does Death Proof. And I kind of think of that 2000s period, the second phase, As the self-aware exploitation throwback period, right? Sure. Kind of like his blank check period. He's cashing a lot of these blank checks for all the goodwill he accrued in the 90s. I mean, I'm not crazy about Jackie Brown, but I I certainly understand why so many people respect that movie. But at this point, he's pretty much three for three, right? Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Pulp Fiction, Jackie Brown. So he's good to go. And Miramax is just throwing money at this guy.
0: And his legend is huge. Like he's just, he's known, he's beloved. Jackie Brown obviously was maybe a little bit of a letdown after Pulp Fiction in sort of, I think it was a modest letdown. It was it was not a disaster or, a, you know, it's not a sophomore slump, but a junior slump or anything like that. What were its, did it get Oscar nominations? I don't remember. I know Robert Forster did. Yes, exactly. That's the
1: one. Very, very deserved Oscar nomination, I would also say.
0: Yes, absolutely. But when, when you look at it from, you know, 10,000 foot level uh it does the gulf between jackie brown and the kill bills feels humongous right almost feels like a he's like leveled up in a a way that's uh not saying in quality but just in terms of what his ambitions are
1: that's fair and so it would make sense that it would take that there'd be such a long gap a six-year gap between those two films because like you said he levels up with kill bill it really is just a whole it's just a huge leap in terms of ambition right Especially yeah. because it's a two-volume epic, and uh, just just the sheer scope of those set pieces is crazy. It's also when he starts developing this idea of chapter headings, right? So in the first Kill Bill, he starts he starts to drop in these chapter headings. I mean, he's he's always experimented with with chronology and you know fractured linearity, but now he's actually ascribing chapters to each of these individual. Yeah. Uh, temporalities. I mean,
0: Pulp Fiction kind of had story. Yeah, or whatever.
1: that's fair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The you know Marcellus Wallace and or uh, Vincent Vega and Marcellus Wallace's wife. But those were just those were just straight up titles, right? They weren't they weren't annotated by chapter. The the Bonnie situation, the gold the gold watch. All right, so that brings us through Grindhouse. So Grindhouse is a big flop. You know, I think uh, Death Proof is sitting at sixty five. Like it's just barely fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. I love that movie. I think it's very misunderstood. I think it's a hell of a lot of fun. I even like the extended director's cut. But but you and I are in the minority. A lot Most people don't respect that movie. Most people think it's like kind of like the unofficial. I mean, Tarantino says that he has made nine movies because he is combining the two Kill Bill films as one movie. I bet you a lot of people think that when he claims to have made nine movies, they probably think he's not counting Death Proof, right? Because Death Proof is is part of the grindhouse experiment?
0: Yeah, I I, I don't know what they're thinking, but... Uh, I, <laughs> I don't mean to be I,
1: presumptuous about what everybody's... I mean, that, that's what I thought up until a couple of days ago when he said, no, 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 Kill Bill is one movie. That's why I've made nine movies.
0: I think, I, I think you're right in that people are more likely to assume that Kill Bill is two movies and Death Proof is... Not a movie as opposed to Kill Building.
1: Yeah, which is bullshit because it's a feature-length film. It's a fucking feature-length movie, Yeah, yes. it's a great movie. I saw it multiple times in the theater. I think it's a whole lot of fun. And it was his first experience working with Kurt Russell. That brings us to Phase 3. Now, technically, this is a cheat because Phase 3 starts with Inglorious Bastards, which is a 2009 movie. So it is technically part of the same decade as those last three movies. But I really feel like Inglorious Bastards is the announcement of the next phase, right? Period piece phase. I would call it the, the genre. I would call it the prestige genre mash age. I guess you're right. I guess all four of them are period pieces, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Okay. So we'll call it the prestige genre mass period piece experimentation age with rolls off the tongue, man, <laughs> with capital. <laughs> I'm just, I'm dancing as fast as I can here um, <laughs> with capital S movie stars who help him to secure his biggest budgets, right? I mean, Inglourious Bastards* is like an $80 million movie. Django Unchained is a $100 million movie. Uh, Hateful Eight's actually a little more reasonable, only about 50 And then uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is a uh, is $100 million movie. And apparently they spent $115 on uh, marketing. This is his biggest movie from a financial standpoint, for sure.
0: Well, his biggest opening weekend. Too, exactly. So.
1: And, you know, stars, debatably, the two biggest living movie stars of the now, right?
0: Yeah, I suppose. I think that makes sense. I mean, if, if we're not counting like, uh, you know, the Robert Downey Jr. superhero type people.
1: It is interesting. I think he originally was courting Tom Cruise for this film, too, right? I'm not sure. I presume it was in the Brad Pitt role, but I actually don't know for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, you'd think it would have to be in the Brad Pitt role.
1: I, I really don't know. I do know that he was going after him. for, And I part of me kind of wishes, you know, this movie is so much about alternate histories. But uh part of me would have really liked to have seen that version of the movie. As, as great as I think Brad Pitt is in this movie, I really like the idea of Tom Cruise and Tarantino together. He's got one more movie to be able to squeeze Tom Cruise in there.
0: Look, I like that idea too, but I, I would I don't I
1: wouldn't, you wouldn't want to s- see him over Pitt. You wouldn't Pitt. switch Brad Pitt out for anybody, of course. All right, so phase three, Inglorious Bastards. It's a comeback, right? Because Kill Bill Volume Two, people are kinda of split on, even though it's a hit. Um most people seem to agree that it's not quite as much fun as the first one and a lot of people hate grindhouse and it's a flop it takes it only takes him two years to go from death proof to inglorious bastards but it feels like a comeback because it's a huge hit it's a surprise hit considering the fact that it's long and it's rated r i mean it does star brad pitt and uh, gets nominated for a bunch of oscars so that that really is he comes fucking roaring back with that movie and it feels like again him kind of leveling up right Wow, there's a level of sophistication to inglorious bastards that just hadn't existed before.
0: Exactly, and and I think you're right. He flipped the switch to okay, I'm going to go after the prestige stuff, right? Like I I don't know what he was feeling, but you're right. The the 2000s were really like genre exploitation stuff that had no chance at winning Oscars or, or him. You know, those movies weren't going to be sort of considered all time classics, really, no matter how fun the Kill Bills were. I guess it felt like a comeback it's sort of i feel like it's grown in stature over the years and it even grew in stature from the time it premiered at Cannes to the time it came out uh you know wide in the u.s and you know i I don't want to spoil my list but it's uh it's one of my favorite movies of all time
1: yeah i mean you know famously or infamously perhaps the last line of that movie is basically tarantino declaring that this is what he considers to be his masterpiece and I wouldn't necessarily argue with that. I mean, it definitely feels like his most mature film, most sophisticated, his most sort of like dramatically complex, perhaps. Yeah, and, and just like, you know, listening to so many podcasts about him and his legacy and his filmography over the last couple of weeks leading up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, this really is a movie that is just universally adored in ways that perhaps even something like Pulp Fiction isn't. I mean, I guess it's, I guess it's the Tarantino movie you show to people who claim to not like Tarantino. I mean, it's quite violent.
0: Yeah, I don't know about that. I mean, m- maybe it's sort of people who had preconceived notions after Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, because um, it is a different type of movie, uh, way more ambitious. Um, but I, I still can't see people who didn't like Tarantino coming in liking Inglorious Bastards necessarily. Although I haven't really had that experience, so I wouldn't know.
1: So something important happens a year after Inglorious Bastards in 2010. Sally Mankey dies. Tarantino's editor. Uh, She had a very, she had a surprise heart attack when she was um, walking in the Hollywood Hills and she dies. And an argument could be made that she was his closest collaborator and maybe she was also kind of like the woman behind the guy, you know, like maybe she was the one who was kind of helping him stay somewhat disciplined. Maybe she was the one kind of pushing back against him. Uh, Maybe she was the, you know, the angel and or devil on his shoulder when he needed it. Because I feel that since Sally Mankey's death, his work has suffered in that it has become more bloated and more indulgent. And their running times have just ballooned. And with all due respect to Fred Raskin, who's a very talented dude, you know, he, he, he was Justin Lin's guy before he started working with Tarantino. He did Fast Five and stuff. He's just no Sally Mankey, And so to me, the, everything's kind of been in a downward well, downward spiral, that's kind of dramatic. I, I think things have, quality has fallen off since Sally Mankey's death. Django Unchained is my least favorite Tarantino movie, which is what comes next. I'll go ahead and spoil that. The Hateful Eight's a movie I actually defend quite a bit, but I do concede that it is a problematic film. And then Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is it's kind of something else, right? <laughs> like, there's just... it's It's sprawling in good ways and in bad ways, and it feels like his loosest movie in ways that I don't think Sally Mankey would have allowed to happen.
0: So let's just get right into it. So I, I saw it last night. You've seen it twice. Uh, I need I need to go see it again. Pretty, you know, I had read some stuff. I tried to stay away from any spoilers, but I, I kind of scoffed when I saw stuff like, oh, this movie has no plot. I'm like, well, uh, that's not the Tarantino I know. I wouldn't expect that from him. <laughs> There must be some goal people are attaining. There must be some sort of plot within the meanderance. But uh, but no, this is a pretty undisciplined script. As fun as it might be and as fun as the cast is and all the different little sort of meta Hollywood stuff that's going on, there truly is not a plot here and it is... Uh, it was really surprising to me I like i I need to, a little more time to sort of you know digest it all, but uh i'm I'm kind of kind of baffled that this movie uh got made that this you know he didn't take another six months to a year to really hone this script
1: yeah, and it is it's also kind of baffling that it seems to be maybe not universally beloved, but it seems like i'm I'm very surprised how much sort of leeway people are giving this movie yeah. i mean the you know the op the op-eds and the hot takes have certainly started to come out uh richard brody from the new yorker wrote a really interesting one over the weekend where he describes this film as uh, like regressive uh in terms of politics and gender dynamics which might yeah. be a little harsh but uh, it's a, it's an extraordinarily well-written uh, opinion piece yeah, I, I've listened to, like I said, listened to so many podcasts of people responding to this over the last few days, and it seems like people are really into it. I'm surprised because, to me, this is the first Tarantino film where I thought to myself, I think we're going to be split 50-50 right down the middle. Like, I think people are actually going to kind of hate this movie, right? And, you know, yeah. 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, nothing to be ashamed of, not, not, not his highest score. Holds a B cinema score. Which so it ties with the hateful eight as the lowest cinema score in his career, although I don't think they had cinema scores back in you know the days of Reservoir dogs and Jackie Brown. I walked out of this film the first time thinking that I had missed something. It's like, what did yeah. that go over my head? Am I not smart enough for this thing? Am I not is is my you know understanding of the late 1960s not deep enough? And so I walked around for about, four hours and then when a friend of mine said she was interested in going to see it I jumped at the opportunity to go see it again so I saw it twice within an eight hour period on Saturday (laughs) afternoon because I just couldn't I mean I couldn't get out of my head and and I guess that is some sort of an indication that there's something fascinating going on with this movie but I didn't feel any different about it the second time around as a matter of fact I felt kind of like more validated thinking that maybe it's his fascinating failure at the risk of using an alliteration I, I, I don't think this movie works it doesn't mean that doesn't necessarily mean I don't like it, and it doesn't necessarily mean I don't think it deserves to exist. I'm glad it exists, but I don't think this movie works. Let me put it that way.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you there, and I you know I don't think you have to overthink this thing, right? Again, there is just simply no plot to this movie, and that is the problem with the movie. You know, Tarantino has, you know. He goes on diversions a lot. You know, you look at Pulp Fiction, you look at Reservoir, you look at you know his entire oeuvre. Even when characters are talking about something that's not about the plot, it sort of serves to inform you about these characters who have a mission, who have something to do, who are on their way to do plot business or whatever. And in this movie, that's just not the case. It's just people wandering around L.A. until we get to a climax that kind of feels unearned. And feels like we've gone back to the Inglorious Bastards well, right? Um, Which also sort of bothered me because now that's not a sort of singular event in Tarantino's history, right?
1: Well, thinking about this third phase of his career, I'm now starting to look at this third phase as being the revenge fantasy phase. Right, yeah. the alternate history phase, because even Django and Chain, you could look at it like, oh, you know, a slave becomes a bounty hunter and ends up taking revenge on slave owners, you know, on, on yeah. characters like Calvin Candy, which is maybe not necessarily historically accurate, but is you know dramatically satisfying for people who are dramatically satisfied by that movie. But, I mean, that's really what these four films are, right? I mean, even, you know, The Hateful Eight is is kind of a revenge fantasy in its own way. And you could even look at um, the Jennifer Jason Leigh character in that movie as maybe even just, like, representing the scourge of the Civil War. And at the end of that yeah. movie, the the black soldier and the white soldier come together for a common purpose, which is to end the war. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one reading of that movie. I'm not saying it's the reading, (laughs) but um, but yeah, I mean, I guess Inglourious Bastards and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood are really the the most, you know, blunt examples of Tarantino being like, fuck the Nazis and fuck the Manson family. Let's burn this shit down. Let's 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 take our revenge against them that we were not given in history. Right. Yeah. Like I'm going to rewrite history through cinema and I'm going to do it in a very bloody and over the top way that hopefully um, give you know offer some amount of catharsis to the jews and hollywood or and sharon tate's family or maybe america as a whole because one can make the argument that everything after you know if, if the if the 60s ended you know if the party was over on august 8th 1969 and nothing has ever been the same since then then he's wanting to say what if we could take all that back? You know, like what if, how would things be different if the sixties didn't have to end on August eighth, nineteen sixty
0: nine? Yeah, it's a it's an Eli Cash situation. Right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> what this film presupposes is maybe a woman who was eight months pregnant didn't get butchered. Yeah. Um yeah, but
0: it is weird. I mean, you mentioned that op-ed in the New Yorker about this movie being regressive. It's you know, this movie's about what if the party didn't end, but also it's You know, staunchly anti-hippie. Yeah,
1: that's interesting. We should get into that.
0: I don't want to think that Tarantino has any sort of political thoughts in that regard, you know, going to this movie. Like, he hasn't been a terribly, like, I don't know, nuanced political guy. Like, his politics are in broad strokes. You know, slavery is bad. The Holocaust was bad. Like, that's not, you know, we all agree with him there. I I would like to think that he's not trying to say something with this movie. Because... If he is, it's I. I it is a regressive, I, I suppose, right? These sort of like the the future is is bad. We should fear the up and comers, you know, people trying to take your job. Sort of glorifying this this alcoholic has been Western actor. I, I I don't know. I mean, it, it does. I, I I can't. I I did feel a little queasy at times watching this movie and, and thinking about what he's what he's saying about. The hippie generation,
1: the uh, just to play devil's advocate on the whole has been alcoholic. I mean, is part of what he's saying about this with this Rick Dalton character that in some sort of alternate history sliding doors scenario, if he had, for example, been cast in The Great Escape instead of Steve McQueen, things might have been different for him, right? I mean, isn't that Uh, isn't that kind of the point of that sequence where he's talking to Timothy Oliphant and they physically they actually drop him into The Great Escape, which is a really interesting thing? I mean, you know, my dad would would never my dad will probably never see this movie but he would never stop throwing up if he saw that sequence where they take his hero Steve McQueen out of his greatest film and his greatest role the great escape and drop in uh, with all due respect to DiCaprio but I think it's just a really interesting sort of sliding doors you know butterfly effect situation the idea that if he had gotten this role maybe things would be completely different but then again maybe he never would have met uh, you know Cliff Booth for example but but you know but then would Cliff Booth's life actually be worse if he hadn't met Rick so, I mean, this uh, this movie is all about these alternate scenarios, right?
0: What do you think he's trying to say of this movie?
1: Well, I mean, I think the obvious reading of it, which I think everybody has sort of, you know, dialed into this week, is that this is his sort of semi-autobiographical, whims, you know, somewhat whimsical look at the fact that he's nearing, you know, perhaps the end of his career and perhaps the end of his relevance. I okay. mean, an, ar- an argument can be made that Tarantino hasn't been capital R relevant, since inglorious bastards, because that probably was his high water mark, and his movie. Yeah, you know, we I mean we,
0: Django was critically acclaimed. He, he, he,
1: won, a, he won a he a fucking yeah. Oscar, and that's his biggest hit. So yes, your, your point's well taken. Um, but I, I do think it's him kind of like reflecting on his legacy and reflecting on the fact that he does see the industry passing him by, and that's part of the reason that maybe he wants to get out of this game and just become a historian and just write you know write books about film history or whatever. You know, he would be he would certainly be the most popular film history professor at USC if he decided to drop everything and go do that tomorrow. Um, So the, the reading of the hippies thing is interesting. I was I was stewing on this a little bit today and thinking to myself, could the Manson family or the idea of the scourge of hippies in general be a commentary on Netflix or millennial filmmakers or something like that, you know, like whatever's coming up behind him? that he finds to be, you know, ugly and deplorable, you know, streaming yeah, it's, 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 digital, photo- you know, digital cinematography. Are these the kinds of things that gross him out and keep him up at night? Is that what these hippies maybe represent, or am I just reading too much into it?
0: No, yeah, I, I like that. It's it's these uh, these weirdo streamers who, you know, the Hollywood elite haven't really been paying attention to until they come up and murder them <laughs> in the middle of the night. Exactly,
1: they're going to come up and they're going <laughs> to yeah. fucking burn your nitrate <laughs> film in the middle of the night, you know, like yeah. you, and, and, you and Christopher Nolan and Paul Thomas Anderson are going to be all holed up like it's night of the living dead and these digital cinematography zombies are going to be busting the doors in
0: so in this scenario tarantino is cliff booth the one protecting (laughs) the uh you know the old guard
1: right yeah i mean he's he's certainly (laughs) split between those two main characters so interesting that this movie not only stars two of the biggest movie stars in the world but also stars 250 something white dudes right and i feel like the sort of hot take political response of this film have not really focused much on that. And maybe it's just because these two guys are just so goddamn likable, right? Are, are DiCaprio and and Brad Pitt given a pass?
0: I think, I think, I think it's a combination. They're, they're both likable. They're both very good. And it's, you know, era appropriate, right? Okay.
1: But you could make, but you could make Sharon Tate the, the lead character, you know, the protagonist of this film, right? If you wanted to, you could make that
0: movie. You could make that movie, but obviously Tarantino is not going to do a straightaway sort of biopic or you know historically accurate thing. I do think some of the gender politics, and I have seen this discussed, that you know the the way this movie treats women or the way this movie ignores women, c- can be seen as problematic. But I think Tarantino does get sort of a pass in that regard, just given the rest of his filmography, right?
1: And this is the first one in a while where he hasn't dropped the N bomb every few minutes, right? So maybe he gets a little bit of credit for that. <laughs>
0: Sure, it's a sliding scale. With I suppose.
1: You know, there obviously was a lot of controversy at the Cannes Film Festival when uh, Tarantino refused to answer questions from uh, critics who uh, accused him of of uh, ignoring that character or not giving you know Sharon Tate's character much dialogue. And you know, there is an intentionality to it, and I do think it works because she's not the main character, and there's something kind of elusive and mysterious about the Sharon Tate persona because. She was not around long enough to become, you know, I'm sorry, this is tragic, but she was not a movie star. She was not an actress long enough to be to become a legitimate movie star. So we just don't know that much about her because she never was able to she was cut down in her prime and she was never, never able to realize her potential. Right. The suggestion of it was there. And she was certainly, you know, already considered to be a, a transcendent beauty. We just don't know enough about her. We didn't get to see enough of her on screen. And I kind of feel like the movie, its approach to dealing with her is sort of appropriate.
0: I agree. I have no issue with, with the way she's personified in this movie. Because, again, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, history to go off of there in terms of who she actually is was and even if you went back it seems like there you know there wouldn't be too many interesting things to say about her and that's not what this movie is about this movie is about two 50 something white guys right (laughs) 40 40 plus white guys but it's very Uh,
1: but there's there's something very intentional and effective about the fact that when she goes to see when she walks into the bruin theater in westwood and I love the fact that it's the Bruin Theater, not the Fox Westwood, because the Fox Westwood is the one right across the street. And the camera pans up when she parks to show the facade of the Fox Westwood, but it's very intentional, I think, appropriate, and probably historically accurate that a movie like The Wrecking Crew was not actually screening in the Fox Westwood, which is the bigger, you know, fancier theater that does big premieres. It's at the Bruin across the street. It's like the B, the B Theater, right? Which is where Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is currently playing, which is kind of fun in Westwood. So she goes to see her movie, The Wrecking Crew with Nancy Kwan and um, and Dean Martin, and she sits and watches the movie, and it's a very cute scene, and Tarantino chooses to use the actual film and footage from the actual film of Sharon Tate as opposed to reshooting those scenes with Margot Robbie as Sharon Tate, right?
0: Yeah, and it works because Margot Robbie looks very, very similar to Sharon Tate. Sure, right? but
1: I don't think he's relying on that. I think he's making a statement when he does that. I think he's saying this is not actually Sharon Tate watching herself. This is Margot Robbie playing Sharon Tate watching Sharon Tate. I think that's a meta commentary and there's an intentionality to that. And apparently Sharon Tate's sister uh, was on set for that and apparently was moved to tears watching the, the filming of that scene. Tarantino went to Sharon Tate's sister and made sure he got her approval and made sure she understood exactly what he was trying to do and what his intentions were with this project before he embarked on it. So he got her he got her endorsement.
0: Well, you know, you're talking about intentionality. So let's let's pull back a little bit. Do you think Tarantino accomplished what he was going for with this movie? Just sort of a meditation on sort of losing your touch or fading away, getting out of your prime? Or do you think, you know, he just sort of misfired or didn't, uh, you know, this was sort of half baked? Um, I mean, is this what he wanted to put on screen?
1: Oh, I'm sure. I mean, at this point in his career, you know, considering how far he's come and, you know, Final Cut and a significant budget and movie stars and all that. I'm sure this movie is exactly what he intended. And I think I understand what he's getting at. You know, I think he's he's saying that, you know, when the 1960s came to an end kind of prematurely, the party ended and the rug was pulled out from under everybody and it left people's heads spinning. And I think that he's saying that like people get to a certain age and they're not ready for the party to be over. They're not ready for their career to be over. They're not ready to be made irrelevant, but fucking time marches on, man, right? 70s are coming around the corner and new Hollywood is, it's on, you know, new Hollywood's on deck and, you know, unfortunately we don't get to choose when history has its way with us. You know, perhaps he feels the next generation of filmmakers around the corner and feels himself becoming more and more relevant and he's using this particular platform in this particular time in Hollywood history, a time that he obviously adores and that he's fascinated by and that he probably wishes he could live in. I mean, he was born in 63, right? So he didn't really get to experience any of this in person. You know, maybe he, he you know, has a, some sort of Proustian memory of, of, you know, hearing some of these, um, you know, radio commercials or whatever, but he wasn't really of age when the, when all this stuff took place. I don't even know if he was living in Los Angeles at that point, but I'm sure he wishes he could, and I'm sure he mythologizes it, and I think he likes the idea of creating this time and being able to, to change the outcome. Being able to say, hey, maybe the 60s didn't happen. Maybe this wonderful time that I mythologized that I wish I could have lived in. Through the magic of cinema, I can stop this from happening. I can stop this from ending the way that it did. And I can reframe this guy's career. And maybe by meeting Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski, if Sharon Tate was allowed to live, maybe this will turn this guy's career around. I mean, do you think that the end of this movie, do you think the last scene where he walks up the driveway and finally meets Sharon Tate, Margot Robbie, his co-star from The Wolf of Wall Street, do you, do you find it to be a happy ending? Do you find it to be melancholy? Or do you find it to be sinister because the camera angle is kind of sinister, right? It's like a weird sort of bird's eye thing up over the top of the house. It's, I, I think it could be taken multiple ways.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose maybe he's presupposing that uh, the Manson murders was a necessity for what came next. No, this is a bad. This is the worst timeline that he's created here. Well,
1: I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, what's coming? I've been watching. I've been watching the CNN series, the movies. Have you been watching yeah, that yeah. at all? I've not. Yet. Oh, it's I, the I fucking greatest be, thing ever. I feel like these guys are making this this miniseries just for me. It's Tom it's Tom Hanks <laughs> and his producing partners. They make those great decade uh miniseries, yeah, yeah. and it's the exact same thing except it's all about the decades of the movies and. Um, they just aired the one on the seventies last night. All I could think to myself, having seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood twice in the last couple of days, was, uh, "Oh, if the Manson, if if Sharon Tate hadn't been killed, maybe there would be some sort of like butterfly effect where we wouldn't get the new Hollywood. You know, maybe yeah. Steven Spielberg never makes Jaws. Maybe William Friedkin yeah. never makes the French. Maybe The French Connection is a response to sort of like the darkness of the Manson family. We're I mean, <laughs> like, maybe we never get any of these movies, right? Maybe we never yeah. get all you know uh, all the presidents. Ben, maybe." cinematic history is forever changed for the worse.
0: Maybe, maybe want or like a, you know, seventh decade in a row of just uh Westerns being the number one. <laughs> yes. Good <genre in laughs> movies. Paint
1: your wagon. Uh, you know, we get the third sequel to paint your wagon,
0: the extended paint your wagon. universe. Yeah. <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> T- talking about the, the, the period aspect of this, I, I will say in this movie's favor, the sort of verisimilitude that Tarantino creates is uh pretty incredible just tons of details and touches and it makes you sort of feel like you know so many period pieces you do see from this era are really half-assed like he really digs into whether it's the the tv stuff or the the radio commercials or the product placements or just sort of lingering on people's shelves that happen throughout the movie you feel super enmeshed in in the time and place uh, more so than you do in almost any other period piece
1: I mean, I'm sure there's all sorts of CGI all over this movie that we don't really notice because it's so organically deployed. But uh, but yeah, just having the money to have a you know to have a production to have an art department redress Hollywood Boulevard, that just warms my heart to be able to use <laughs> you know, to to use your powers for good. Right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I was actually a little bit disappointed uh, as, as much as I've been enjoying my time in New York the last couple of years. I was disappointed that I wasn't living in L.A. Uh, last summer, because apparently it was a lot of fun to drive around, you know, the Arclight or the Pussycat Theater or whatever and like see all this, all these crazy facades that they had redressed to be <laughs> period appropriate. You want to hear a quick aside, a story about when I met Quentin Tarantino? Yes, because, it, because it falls into this category of um, of all this little like minutia and uh, and the stuff on people's walls. So in 2001, Quentin Tarantino came to Seattle uh, because he was doing a retrospective tribute to a Western director named William Whitney. He directed a lot of television and, uh, and quite a few films, but he certainly was never talked about um, the, way, you know, the same way as his peers like John Ford or whatever. But Tarantino is one of the world's biggest William Whitney fans because uh, William Whitney specialized in like horse stunts. He brought a bunch of short films from William Whitney and screened them at this. So this is in 2001, right? So this is smack dab in the middle of that, of that low period we were talking about where he didn't really have much going on of his own. So he comes to SIF and I hear he's coming. I know nothing about William Whitney. I don't really even care that much about what the films are. I just want to go somewhere so where I can see Tarantino talk in person. And so I walk into the Egyptian theater in uh, on Capitol Hill and I come through the lobby and I turn the corner and there he is and he's holding court. And he's just got this huge group of people around him, you know, probably film students from Seattle Central College or whatever. And so I basically just go over and like nudge my way into this circle. And, you know, eventually everybody starts kind of introducing themselves and it's all very casual and... You know, I didn't like shake his hand or anything, but he like looked at me and acknowledged me, and I, I, you know, introduced myself and stuff, and we just sort of had this conversation. I was trying to keep up with this whole William Whitney thing because that's all he wanted to talk about. That, that's what he was there for. <laughs> he wasn't there to talk about his movies, he wasn't there to talk about Grindhouse movies. He was there to talk about William Whitney, and that's what he wanted to pontificate about. And so, uh, and so he did. So he went up on stage, and he just, and it was exactly what you'd expect from the guy, you know, just the fucking motor mouth nostalgia. And it was fun. But uh, I found the shorts to be, you know, fun for a little bit. But I think I ended up getting up and leaving before the end of um, because I really was just there to see Tarantino introduce them. I'm sorry, it probably makes me seem like a philistine, but I was, you know, 17, no. 18 years old at the time.
0: You can't expect any 17 year old to be super into horse stunts. You know,
1: I mean, it was. I mean, he made a good point that like this this guy l- literally was using stunt horses, and he, and the stuntmen were doing crazy, dangerous things. And he would like point out places in the films where stuntmen actually were getting injured and. Anyway, long story short, William Whitney directed a movie called The Golden Stallion. Uh, That's one of three features he directed in 1949. If you watch when uh, Brad Pitt goes into his trailer, uh, when he goes back to his trailer behind the Van Nuys drive-in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he has a Golden Stallion poster on his wall. <laughs> when Uma Thurman gets to Bill's little bungalow, hacienda, whatever, at the end of Kill Bill Volume Two during the third act, she walks in and she confronts Bill and their daughter, and the Golden Stallion is playing on the TV in the background.
0: <laughs> this fucking guy.
1: So, yeah. <laughs> so he, he's consistent, right? You know. Yeah. He's yeah, not absolutely. just a yeah. He's no poser. It's the, no, he's he's died in the wool with this all. stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, this movie is is wall to wall with this kind of minutia, which is probably the thing that got him most excited about a project like this. Right. With all due respect to his respect for the Manson family and stuff. I mean, I'm sure the sexiest part of this for him is the idea that he's going to get to recreate this time period.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the more I think about it, the more it's like, well, what else should he do besides, you know, enjoy himself at this point? Right. Like he's got nothing to prove. Of course, he's already said he's going to do 10 movies. He's gone through his prestige phase. You know, if he really cared about like winning an Oscar, like I mean, or winning a Best Picture or Best Director or whatever, like maybe he'd focus on that. But I, I don't get the feeling that that's something that keeps him up at night. So yeah, might as well make a movie like this. It's kind of it's kind of different than anything else he's done. I don't know. Yeah, it's it's hard to blame the guy. And again, I'll I'll, I'll sit, and, you know, I'll watch any movie he makes. And it, it, you know, even if I am disappointed by Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it. And like you said, I'm glad it exists.
1: Yeah, it's never not interesting. That's more than you can say for for a lot of films. But it is it, it you know it is hard not to be you know just somewhat disappointed at the film's lack of discipline or effectiveness. I mean, I've gone through such an interesting. Emotional roller coaster with this movie. I mean, when it was first announced, you know, a couple years ago, whatever, I got really excited because I think I had probably just listened to the Karina Longworth podcast series. You know, she does a series called "You Must Remember This," great series. If anybody's interested, it's it's, the, the way I always describe it is it's serial. For like classic, for people who are interested in like classic Hollywood lore, so she did this like twelve part series about the Manson family, which I listened to all of. So I was really deep into this subject matter, and when I heard he was making a film that was you know at least tangentially related to it, I got super excited because I'm fascinated by that. I'm not I'm not really into like true crime or whatever, but the Manson the Manson murders and the Wonderland murders interest me because I certainly fetishize Hollywood history. And then the teaser comes along, and I was incredibly baffled and sort of let down by it, and I didn't really like the style of it, and the performances seemed weird, and none of the jokes were landing, and I wasn't crazy about the musical choices. And then the poster comes along a couple days later, and that was even worse. Bad poster. I mean, with all respect to the handsomeness of, of our two leads here, just a dumb, bland, uninteresting poster. So at this point, I'm like, I don't know about this movie, man. This, may, this, this might be a you know crash and burn for this guy and then it comes out at can and people seem to really respond to it and then the day after that big premiere at can they release the full trailer which is a huge improvement and it's got that fucking banger of a, of a Neil Diamond song at the end, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was like, all right, I'm back. in. <laughs> I'm on board. And um, and then the first few reviews come out a couple months after that, and they seem to be pretty positive and very intriguing. Like the things that they're saying are like, wow, this this really sounds like it's going to be kind of a departure, something new for him. Maybe he's really like broadening his horizons and, and spreading his wings. I started to allow myself to do the thing that I was trying not to, which was to just become a full on four alarm fanboy, right?
0: Yeah, I gave in. I gave into it as
1: well. I gave. Yeah. In into it I just started watching the trailer over and over and over Was listening, you know I I allowed myself to go look at some of those websites where they they start to release the track listing of the soundtrack and yeah by the time the, the film came along I was just clawing the walls you know counting the hours and then saw it and was was quite disappointed slash sort of confused by how I felt about it. And so I've really just just completely run the gamut with this movie. I mean, honestly, this conversation has made me respect it a little bit more just because clearly there's a lot to talk about, right?
0: Yeah, there's a lot to talk about. But, you know, most of the stuff to talk about is sort of in context- in the context of his career maybe the movie itself there isn't much to talk about sort of it, i wouldn't call it a mess but it's just a meandering sort of formless meditation on you know whatever themes he chose so I, it's enjoyable scene by scene if you pick them out they're they're fun like all the stuff on the western set is fun and the the two leads are really 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 good but i just don't think it amounts to a whole lot and again like as cathartic as he probably intended the final climactic scene to be I really just hate that he went back to the alternate timeline well you know from inglorious bastards that 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 really does sort of bother me because I You know, watching the movie, that that thought kept popping in my head. Like, okay, is he gonna is he gonna do the exact same thing he did with *Inglorious Bastards*? Like, no, no, Tarantino wouldn't do that. (laughs) And then it comes, and I'm like, oh fuck, he really is gonna do that. That's yeah, it's super disappointing.
1: I'll try to couch this in a way that doesn't make me sound, uh, you know pretentious this is exactly the way i always expected this to end (laughs) and i'm not saying that to say like oh i always you know like i I totally saw this coming and uh, i i I totally expected the ending but like when i heard that he was going to deal with this subject matter i was like oh yeah well then obviously the reason that he wants to deal with that is so that he can stop it from happening right because like you said he already proved that that's what he's excited about in glorious bastards and to a lesser extent django and chain and i was like oh that's that's the only way this can end now, the only difference is that I expected the Manson family to break into Sharon Tate's house like they did in real life. And then I thought Brad Pitt and um, DiCaprio would come to the rescue in the house. I never, I didn't sure. expect for them to go to the other house. That was different. Mm-hmm. That was new. The justification for that on the part of the Manson family is pretty damn flimsy. I mean, is it just because DiCaprio walks down his driveway with the margaritas and berates the hippies. Is that the reason they choose to go to his house instead of Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski's house? To me, that felt like a really flimsy setup.
0: Yeah, it's super flimsy. And then it's just the conversation in the car about how they knew the actor, how they knew him from before. And that's it. So it wasn't like a long con, it wasn't a long setup. I I agree that it's a it's it's flimsy and it's not you know, in Glorious Bastards, it's super well earned throughout the entire movie, right?
1: I guess the idea is that Tarantino's saying, hey, if my characters if characters that i invent were dropped into these scenarios <laughs> then history is different kind of the way that mark Wahlberg one time uh yeah like argued he that he 911 w- flight yeah. <laughs> exactly that he'd be he would have been able to stop 911 if he had just been on that flight of so course. Tarantino's saying my characters are so strong my characters are so interesting my characters are so proactive that if aldo rain or shoshana or uh, Rick Dalton and Cliff Booth, if they had been there, mm-hmm. if I was able to insert them into the annals of history, things would be different.
0: If he was gone, then things <laughs> would be different. Yes,
1: indeed. All right. So just the ending in general, The I mean, I knew this was coming to a certain extent. I'm not quite sure if I knew it was going to be this cartoonish. I guess it kind of has to be, but... Just for you, I mean, how did it how did it strike you? It was just like this burst of violence that comes in a film that's actually not particularly violent up to that point and is just so incredibly over the top. I mean, I guess it feels inevitable.
0: Yeah, I, I wouldn't say necessarily bristle at it, but it is, it is sort of out of nowhere because that's not the feel for the movie, you know, for the first two hours and 25 minutes. Because it's Tarantino, I did feel it was inevitable, and I wasn't really surprised by any of it. You know, the, the degree to which Brad Pitt sort of beats up that one hippie girl, and then the flamethrower, you know, it's just... Uh, it's it's sort of obviously over the top. Did you catch the
1: flamethrower earlier when when Cliff goes to the when Cliff goes to the no uh, I, d- I didn't see it no. When Cliff goes to the tool shed to fix Rick's antenna, the uh, flamethrower is sitting there against the wall, and I remember clocking that. I, I didn't necessarily put together that that Rick would eventually need to use that against the Manson family, but I remember looking at that thing like, oh hey, look he's got the flamethrower from the forty the fourteen fists of McCluskey or whatever.
0: Well, yeah, it's old old movie rule. If you show a flamethrower early in the movie, <laughs> you gotta use it. It's Chekhov's flamethrower <laughs> yeah
1: so uh the playboy mansion scene pretty dumb scene, sort of yeah. inconsequential I
0: it felt like they just needed to give Margot Robbie some more time and they wanted to give Steve McQueen some speaking stuff
1: I will say I think Damian Lewis really does look a lot like Steve McQueen <laughs> so I, I kind of like that casting and I do kind of like his sort of melancholy speech about how he never had a chance with Sharon Tate
0: so that's a good scene to just talk about this movie because it is kind of a microcosm of sort of the lack of effectiveness effectiveness of this film because like that's a good scene like that that, that little monologue that he gives is, is good and enjoyable but it doesn't serve any sort of greater purpose. And so there are a ton of scenes like this where you know in a vacuum they're fun and good and if they had anything to do with a larger plot or story, you'd love them but it's just it-
1: this movie is less than the sum of its parts. Um, I also hate the fact that he he puts little subtitles he puts little um, introduction little subtitles underneath JC bring. Steve McQueen and Michelle Phillips. Like, it's just, it's it's going to come up organically anyway, dude. We get the fact that that Steve McQueen, like, and, you know, and Jay Sebring's going to play a big part in this movie. I, I hate stuff like that. Like, I hated when he did the same thing in Glorious Bastards. One of the few things that I dislike about Inglorious Glorious Bastards is when he does those little arrows to... To Goebbels and Goering, and I just don't, I don't like I don't like that stuff, and I also don't like the shoehorn narration that he's been adopting recently.
0: Yeah, I don't like the narration in this movie at all.
1: It didn't work in Hateful Eight either. It actually works in Glorious Bastards, and I think it's just because Samuel L. Jackson makes it work. But it probably shouldn't really work. But that's something that's something that's kind of like defined his third phase is his insistence on adding these weird little interstitial narrations.
0: Yeah, these, these weird bursts that they're yeah, this inconsistent throughout the film for
1: sure. Um, I think Margaret Qualley is going to be a big movie star.
0: She's looked sixteen for like ten <laughs> years.
1: I wasn't really familiar with her until I watched the uh, Fosse Verdon show where she plays Anne Ryan King.
0: You don't remember her in Kiss Kiss Bang Bang?
1: Margaret Qualley, really? Yeah. What was that? Like twelve years, years ago. ago? It's crazy. And she must have actually been twelve they made that right isn't she, isn't she like isn't she like 24 years old or something she's andy mcdowell's daughter she is an, one of a number of movie stars movie stars children who play manson family members in this right it's crazy margaret qualley uh, harley quinn smith rumor willis
0: sorry i wasn't thinking of kiss kiss bang bang i was thinking of the nice guys but similar oh
1: she's in the films. nice guys sure, sure sure yeah i think she's dynamite in this i think she just absolutely i mean she just looks like a movie star to me so i think she's great uh, the best shot from the trailer isn't even in the movie. I know this is sometimes kind of a specious uh, complaint to have, but the scene, the the shot where Charles Manson gives the little wave at Brad Pitt when he's on the roof, I know I know, yeah, I, I know yeah. exactly when that was supposed to happen in this movie. I think it would have been really effective, and I'm really missing it. <laughs> Whatever, Tarantino's got final cut. And sort of on that same note, the word Manson is never mentioned in this film, which I think is kind of interesting. Right? Yeah, they just Charlie. keep talking about well, Charlie. Charlie. Julia Butters, the little girl from the Western. Yeah. I mean, I think we're going to be talking about her, you know, years from now and look back and be like, wow, what an incredible, you know, breakout per- child performance, right? She's great. And, you know, she mentions that she's eight years old. And I just kept thinking about Jodie Foster and Tatum O'Neill because if yeah. this movie takes place in 1969, then somebody like Jodie Foster, you know, who was 14 years old when she made Taxi Driver in 1976 would have mm-hmm. been about this age, right? So yeah, I couldn't I couldn't help but think about her and her like method acting methodology and think about okay she's she's a representation of like what a child actor is going to look like in the 70s and how like these these really interesting child actors like Tatum O'Neill or Jodie Foster are going to break out right
0: Do you think Tarantino has a uh, just has a vendetta against method actors <laughs> do you think that's what part of that was I don't
1: know I don't think I don't think he's I don't think the movie's judgmental of her method right I mean she's clearly very talented and it's she kinda, has a doctrine it's
0: mocking it a little bit yeah I don't know
1: I think it's one of the more effective scenes in the movie, actually.
0: I agree. I mean, I love the scene. Yeah.
1: I mean, when he when DiCaprio breaks down and that whole extended Western, I think, is so interesting. A, I kind of just want to watch that movie instead. Like, I kind (laughs) of just want to see the Lancer movie. Lancer was a real show. And I think this is interesting that that it's basically in terms of all these alternate histories we've been talking about. This is basically Tarantino sort of doing an alternate history version of a bad Western show. Because Lan- yeah. Lancer is considered to be like a lesser bonanza. And so you have basically have him shooting this bad Western television show like a good Western movie, right?
0: Yeah, and I'd love to see DiCaprio versus Oliphant head-to-head in a you know, two-hour film. Right? Fun.
1: DiCaprio's never made... I mean, of course, you got the Deadwood connection with Oliphant, which is fun and justified and stuff. But DiCaprio has not made a Western since The Quick and the Dead, right? No, I don't think so. Which is it's just like watching that sequence and like, please give me the fucking DiCaprio Western. <laughs> Uh, Austin Butler as Tex Watson. That is the, that is our new Elvis. That actor is Baz Luhrmann's Elvis. I don't know if you've read oh, that. Oh, that's right.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll see.
1: So Steve McQueen's breakout television show was a show called Wanted, Dead or Alive, which is obviously what Bounty Law is based on. So I just feel like the ghost of Steve McQueen kind of permeates this movie, right? Part of me almost wishes that they either hadn't had Damian Lewis as that character or had him play a bigger role in all this. Because he's right there on the fringe, and I think he's very well cast. But just the suggestion of him kind of makes me either want more of him or none of him.
0: Yeah, I mean, there should have been at least one scene of him and DiCaprio as old friends or old foes sure. getting together or something,
1: right? Yeah, yeah, smoking cigarettes. Sharon Tate goes into a bookstore at one point and buys a copy of uh, Tess of du- uh, D'Uberville and she says she's going to give it to her husband, Ron Polanski. Polanski would eventually make the film adaptation of that book and cast uh, an underage Nastasia Kinski in that, who he allegedly was having an affair with while they were making the movie. The idea that Sharon Tate was buying a book that her husband would eventually make Cast another young woman <laughs> that he would seduce. I just think it's kind of interesting. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's historically accurate, but I just think it's an interesting. It's an interesting observation on Tarantino's part. Uh, the other thing. I don't mean to sound like uh, you know, like a member of the sketch, the Californians here.
0: <laughs> I love this. I love this.
1: One zero zero five zero Cielo Drive is in the Holmby Hills above Beverly Hills. It's uh, it's just north of UCLA, so it's on the west side. So if you were going to leave. The house on Cielo Drive and drive to Panorama City where Cliff lives, where his trailer is behind the Van Nuys drive-in, you would go west to the Sepulveda Pass, and then you take the 405 over the Sepulveda Pass, but he goes east. And he goes into Hollywood and takes the Cahuanga Pass, which is a much longer way to get there. The only justification I, c- I can come up with in my mind is that Tarantino really wants to see him racing along Hollywood Boulevard at night, which is fine. That's a totally cool justification. And maybe, maybe Cliff takes the long way because he wants to drive Hollywood Boulevard. You know, somebody lived in Los Angeles for so many years and was constantly thinking about which freeway made more sense at a given time of day. You don't go east, man. You go west. You do the Sepulveda Pass, not the Cahuenga Pass. All right.
0: That was that was the Californians. How do you want to rank these? You want to go uh, back and forth, or you just want to go?
1: Uh, Let's just do the whole thing. Go for it. Ten to one. Well, oh, oh, by the way, we're doing we're we're assuming ten films, even though he thinks that the Kill Bill movies are only one. We are going to rank ten individual films.
0: All right, my number ten is the Hateful Eight. Don't despise that movie, but uh, it's a lot, and you know it's not a movie I'm ever itching to go back to, which is uh, kind of the exception for. Tarantino's filmography uh, number nine. Once upon a time in Hollywood. Um, yeah, I you know I got to see it again, think about it more. But as a placeholder spot, that feels right. Then I have Death Proof, uh, Django Unchained, Kill Bill Volume Two, Kill Bill Volume One, Reservoir Dogs, Jackie Brown, Pulp Fiction, and Inglorious Bastards. Number one.
1: Go back and watch Hateful Eight again. It's on Netflix at the moment. There's actually a uh, <laughs> there's something nobody asked for, which is a extended version of. Hateful Eight. He actually went back and um, edited into five chapters, so it's basically a mini series now on Netflix. Give it another chance that way. Watch it over the course of five nights. They're an hour. They're basically an hour apiece. Four. I guess there's four. Yeah, there's four chapters, and so it's almost four hours long. All right, maybe I'll do that. Give, that sounds like a better way to watch. Give it another chance. Yeah. So Django Unchained is number ten on my list. It's just a movie that I remember being very disappointed by. Have not rewatched it since. It was saw it twice in the theaters. Have not rewatched it since. I Am overdue to give it another chance. But I just remember remember feeling extraordinarily disappointed by it and like he just had completely failed in what he was trying to do, even though it has its moments. I also I think part of it, part of my feeling about that, my disappointment with the film was tempered by the fact that everybody was gushing about Christoph Waltz who was basically giving a version of the same performance he gave in Inglourious Bastards*? and nobody was talking about DiCaprio. And I think that DiCaprio in Django Unchained, that might be one of his top four or five best performances. And I I just resented the fact that he was so overshadowed when I really feel like he's the best part of that movie. I'll watch it again. You watch Hateful Eight again. We'll re-rank one of these days. Number nine, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, At the moment, I'm just quite disappointed with this movie. Number eight is Death Proof, which is a movie that I really, really like, but I get the fact that it is lesser. Number seven is Jackie Brown, another movie that I probably need to revisit. It just doesn't inspire the same kind of passion in me as it does in a lot of people. Number six is The Hateful Eight, which is a movie I actually like quite a bit. Rewatched it recently. Number five is Kill Bill Volume 2, which is a movie that I wasn't crazy about when I saw it in the theater, and I've liked it more every single time I've watched it. That's a movie that I feel probably peaks... Right around the halfway point, it never really recovers, but the highlights in that movie are so high. Number four is Reservoir Dogs. Watched it again over the weekend. It's great. It's scruffy. It's a debut film. It's cheap, but it's part of the charm. Number three is Kill Bill Volume 1. Underrated, which is weird to say because it was a big hit and it was critically acclaimed, and yet I feel like people don't talk about it the same way that they talk about uh, Jackie Brown or Inglourious Bastards, for example. And I really think that in terms of what he was going for, in terms of what his aspirations were for that film, he just completely nailed every single thing. Like, there's just not a fucking hair out of place in that movie, right? Yeah, it's, I love that It's movie. exactly what he was setting out to do, and it blew my fucking mind when he decided to do an anime an entire yeah. anime interlude in the middle of it. it's like all right i'm in inglorious bastards is number two for me it's very hard one and two inglorious bastards pulp fiction they honestly they flip-flop for me on any given day on this day inglorious bastards is number two it's probably his most mature and sophisticated work but i think pulp fiction is still his masterpiece
0: it's 1a 1b i think they're both absolute masterpieces for sure it's
1: kind of like the Schindler's list raiders of the lost ark uh conversation yeah. they had Right.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, they're, they're two of my favorite movies of all time, probably, you know, top 10, top 15, top 20 at any given point. Um, so it's hard to quibble there.
1: And it's a guy in his 20s and a guy in his 40s. Right. And the fact that he yeah. still is as effective, you know, 20 years later and doing something that's, you know, so much more ambitious and not necessarily as like culturally relevant or significant, but still shows a certain amount of like maturity. Or development as a filmmaker, right? Where you can still see the seeds of pulp fiction in *Inglorious Bastards*, but it is made by a much more mature filmmaker, you know, with a much like grander worldview, who's like spent time living abroad and, you know, having relationships with European women, probably, and uh, you know, watching you know more foreign films, maybe learning another language. Although I have heard that he doesn't, that Tarantino doesn't speak French, Italian. Or German, particularly well, and yet he would go over to actors like Melanie Laurent or Christoph Waltz and give them notes about specific lines of dialogue, despite the fact that he didn't know the language they were speaking it in. And I guess that's just how tuned, how dialed in he is to his own, to what's on the page, and also yeah. to um, you know the inflection of the performance. Mo- going forward from here, if there is only one left, which of the fantasy projects that he has floated? Would you like to see? What would you like his last film to be at this point? Star Trek, Kill Bill Volume 3, The Vega Brothers, something completely different.
0: How about this, Matt? This would be the dream. I love the idea of Kill Bill Volume 3 because I think it makes sense story-wise, story-wise with Vivica A. Fox's daughter. If you made a Kill Bill Volume 3 that was similar to Reservoir Dogs slash Pulp Fiction in some way.
1: Okay. So how about that? Meaning what? Me- in that? terms of tone?
0: In terms of tone, more of a L.A. crime story type thing. But in the Kill Bill universe,
1: if he makes a Kill Bill volume three, does that count as part of the Kill Bill saga? And as a result, doesn't count as the 10th movie. And then we can theoretically get his Star Trek movie as well. Can we can we find a loophole here? I just I'm just trying uh, to just yeah. trying to squeeze I mean, as many movies as possible out of this guy.
0: I mean, he can do whatever he wants yes, he and can. he can count him it, however he wants. And, I, you know, I think if, if you ask, you know, if I had to bet on it, I would say he makes more than 10 movies. I don't think he can help himself.
1: Yeah, let's hope he can I gotta say, I... Yeah, what's your dream? Well, I, I really... I want to see The Kill Bill Volume 3, and I want to see his Star Trek movie. I didn't think I cared about his Star Trek movie until I started to, like, read some articles and how J.J.'s on board and how the cast is on board and how he says it's basically, you know, Pulp Fiction in space or whatever, which is just him, you know, basically trolling me or whatever the opposite of trolling is that's just him trying to like get me excited about something i want to see an r-rated star trek movie with you know chris pine and zachary quinto and i feel like at this point what do they got to lose sure let's do that let's go this direction i mean don't you think i mean it's not going to make as much money as you know star trek beyond if it's r-rated but don't you think just the sheer curiosity factor for people with an r- rated star trek directed by quentin tarantino that might be his last movie I feel like that's got to be good for at least 250 million bucks. It'll be very
0: weird. I mean, it's going to be, it's a small, you know, needle to thread, right? Like you really risk pissing off all the Star Trek purists. And there are a lot of them out there who I guess kind of hate the JJ ones anyway.
1: Yeah, or you know, he talked for so many years about how how much he wanted to do Casino Royale. So now that we're coming to the end, now that Daniel Craig's Bond tenure is over, why don't we let Tarantino reboot the Bond franchise?
0: Let's line up the next Bond and have it be just four off tours in a row doing Bond with someone new. We'll have a Nolan Bond. We'll have a Tarantino Bond. We'll have a Villeneuve Bond. We'll have a... Let's let's just do that. Let's get the broccolis on the line.
1: What, what if we just recast... What if we just do a different actor every time? What if we just do one Zidra Elba, uh, Henry Cavill? Tarantino can cast Michael Madsen as Bond. That's fine. He's been in a Bond movie before. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, who would Tarantino cast? Well, what if he, he can, what if he did something crazy? What if he did like Corey Feldman? You know, like what if he did some sort of one of his reclamation projects, right?
0: He just brought back Pierce Brosnan as an old Bond
1: I mean, that's that's what he said he wanted to do. Like, back in the late 90s, he said, he said, I think Pierce Brosnan is a perfect Bond, which really surprised me, because it, he doesn't seem to have anything to do with Tarantino's sensibilities, but he's like, I want Pierce Brosnan as Bond, I want to do Casino Royale, but I want to do it as a period piece, and I want it to be rated R.
0: <laughs> that's, you know, the broccolis aren't going to allow that. Yeah, I mean, he, and he
1: honestly probably had more juice back then than he does now to be able to make something like that happen. I, I mean, I just like the idea of Tarantino maybe working in one of these franchise spaces. Ordinarily, I would never say that about an auteur. But at this point, don't you kind of want to see what this guy would do with some pre-established formula, with some pre-established franchise?
0: And maybe if it's part of a franchise again, that can be a loophole. It's not really one of his movies, so it wouldn't count. Look at us talking about alternate histories on a podcast about a movie about alternate histories. That's
1: well, <laughs> well and, speak, and just in terms of alternate histories, he's been talking about doing the Vega Brother movies for years. Now you can't. Technically do a Vega Brothers sequel because they're both dead, right? So he wanted to do a Vega Brothers prequel with Travolta and Madsen as the younger versions of themselves. They probably could have got away with that in the late nineties. They can't get away with it now. So what if we just do what if the movie opens with two alternate timelines? Vic Vega survives Reservoir Dogs and Vincent Vega survives Pulp Fiction. I'd be into that. And they're and they're dancing with Sharon Tate at uh, Jack Jackrabbit Slims. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Alright, Matt, I think that's that about does it. This has been We Like Movies. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Matt.
1: Goodbye, Matt. Hot August night, and the leaves hanging down, and the grass on the ground smelling sweet.
0: Move up the road to the outside of town, and the sound of that good guy's
1: He walks in Eyes black as coal And when he lifts his face Every year in the place he's on